From the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, this is Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. Injury Insider is presented by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs. Hello and welcome to Injury Insider with Derek Hayes on Business Radio X. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. This show will answer legal questions and debunk personal injury myths with insight and expertise. For nearly 25 years, Derek Hayes has exclusively represented injured parties in Georgia. Now he'd like to put that knowledge to work for you. My name is Lita Brooks, and it's my pleasure to introduce the star of the show, Derek Hayes. Good afternoon, Derek. Good afternoon, the star of the show. That sounds important. That's you. How are you today? Doing well, and you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Glad to be here. Love your show. And But before we begin, a quick reminder that Injury Insider is brought to you by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs, and by the Status Market, your online marketplace for your home. Also, by the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Injured in Georgia, make the right call to the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. All right. I could have avoided that car crash, <laughs> right? I saw it coming. Yeah, well, we kind of delayed, paused it for a brief second, <laughs> waiting for it. I thought he forgot, so I was just going to roll right through it, because that's what we do as professionals, right? Yeah, we never exactly. skip a beat. I can't imitate that sound effect, but anyway. I know, I understand. All right, well, let's get started. So it is always a surprise for me when we get together for your shows, because I never know what we are going to discuss. No matter what, I do know that we're going to learn a lot and we're going to gain incredible insight into whatever the topic is for the day. As for this show, I understand that today is completely based on questions submitted through the podcast tab on your website. Now, we're going to go through the questions, and at the end of the show, we're going to tell all the listeners how to submit questions. So if something sparks a question or you have a friend or a relative that has a question, we're going to get you to Derek so you can submit as well. Uh, Derek, you have used an entire podcast to answer questions, and the response to that show was tremendous. We did that uh, a couple of months yeah, ago, I think, right? It, it spurred a lot more questions. Right, and uh, probably a lot of the ones that have come in and that we're going to cover today. Uh, before we started today's show, you gave me a few specific questions I'd like to read, and I have a feeling that you picked these for a reason. Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what gave it away, but ultimately I have to go through several, and thankfully the response has been great. I'm getting questions every week, and so I try as best I can to either respond directly with an email or pick some that we can discuss here on, on the podcast. But I did want to go kind of with a theme today uh, for this show. And so the theme based on these questions has to do with damages and specifically proving damages uh, in a personal injury case. So basically, we're going to talk about um, all the steps necessary and, and what needs to be done in order to, to prove those damages eventually, either to an insurance company or to a jury. So before we get to the questions, I do want to stop and kind of lay a quick foundation. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I do want to kind of, again, lay a foundation. Well, that's probably important, yeah, right? That's, that's what you're here to do. Tell us how mm -hmm. all this works, and then we'll dive in. So, sure, all right, sure. I'm going to turn it to you. Go ahead. So really, there are three basic kinds of damages that someone can receive in a personal injury claim. The first is known as special damages. Now, special damages are things 
if you think in terms of medical bills and, and lost wages, they're things that have receipts for a specific amount. So if you're injured in a car wreck, you go to the hospital, you're going to have an ambulance bill, you're going to have a hospital bill, you're going to have an ER doctor bill, maybe a radiology bill. So those bills have specific dollar amounts. Those are special damages, dollars that are set in stone. Next, you have general damages. Now, general damages, think in terms of pain and suffering. Pain and suffering, and here's the legal standard, everybody loves this phrase, mm -hmm. pain and suffering is determined by, quote, the enlightened consciousness of a jury. Unquote. <laughs> okay. Yeah, legal mumbo yeah, jumbo. Yeah, legal mumbo but, jumbo. What does it mean? Just think about it this way. Nobody's ever going to walk up and give you a receipt and say, okay, here's what you're entitled to for sure. pain and suffering. After a jury's heard all the evidence, the facts, and the testimony, then they're enlightened and they can use their consciousness to determine what the appropriate amount of money is to compensate you for that pain and suffering. I would like to think that of all the legal minds in this world, they might have been able to come up with a better phrase. I'm just saying. Yeah, well, that, I'm just saying. It's almost a tongue twister even. But nonetheless, okay. the enlightened consciousness of a jury. And then the third damage is known as punitive damages. Now, punitive damages are designed to punish a defendant for bad conduct. So think in terms of DUI, reckless driving, hit and run, racing. There are other examples, but those are specific times where a jury can give more money to punish the defendant, the, the at-fault driver, for egregious, very bad conduct uh, to prevent them from doing the same stupid thing again in the future driving under the influence, racing, reckless driving, all those things. So special and general damages, again, medical bills, lost wages, special damages, pain and suffering, general damages. Those two, special and general damages, you're entitled to past, present, and future amounts. So ultimately, you can look at past pain and suffering from the moment of impact to present pain and suffering at the time the claim is being resolved or a jury's hearing it, and then future pain and suffering or past, present, and future medical expense, past, present, and future lost wages. But it's the, the requirement basically of the plaintiff to prove every single damage they allege. Okay, so basically what you're saying is if you can't prove it, you won't get paid for it. Absolutely not. A jury can't give you money for something you've not been able to prove to them. Okay. All right. Let's go to the first question. Sure. That's the foundation, right? Yes. All right. Yes. This first question came from Rob in Marietta, Georgia. Okay. Several years ago, I was involved in a really bad car wreck and had to have two surgeries as a result. I handled the case on my own, but have always had second thoughts on what I should have received in my settlement. The biggest trouble I had was proving my lost wages. I am self-employed and don't get a weekly paycheck. The adjuster refused to pay me for several jobs I lost while I was out of work. How can you possibly prove lost wages when you miss time from work and don't have an hourly wage to calculate the loss? Great question, Great Robin. question. Yeah, it is. It really is. And that's the kind of question I get all the time. Um, before I answer it, I do want to say, too, that this is never considered to be specific legal advice. I know that Rob's case is apparently already settled. He referenced several years ago. But uh, whenever I talk and respond to these kinds of questions, if there is a more specific answer you'd like to get, then call my office. Uh, because I can't, again, give specific legal advice. I can simply talk in general terms. Uh, but for Rob, I want to go ahead and, and kind of, like we did a while ago, lay a quick foundation before going to the specific answer. Let's talk about really how wages are compensable. In other words, how you can be compensated for them. Past lost wages, I kind of mentioned that a while ago. That's a special damage. Again, something you can have a receipt for. So if you're hurt in a car wreck, a doctor took you out of work, said you're not able to go based on the severity and extent of your injuries, you didn't get paid for that period of time, you can recover for that time when the doctor is taking you out of work. 
You can also recover for time missed from work to go to doctor's appointments. People don't really think about that. You've got to leave the office at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when you normally would work, work till 5 to be able to get to that doctor's appointment, or you got to go first thing in the morning. So after an accident, keep track of any and all doctor's notes excusing you from work, all doctor's appointments when you had to leave work to go and, and get to that appointment or any kind of follow-up visits, and that way you're at least starting to document your past lost wages. Now let's talk about future lost wages. Again, this is a special damage, a dollar amount that can be put in stone based on how long you expect to be based uh, out of work based on the doctor's recommendation. So future lost income can happen if you suffer traumatic injuries, for example, such as, say, broken bones and surgeries or maybe paralysis, oh, okay. something to that extent. Uh, your doctor may decide that you are unable to work at all in the future given your condition. If you're, say, for example, a roofer, and you break both legs and you've had knee surgeries and your job requires you to stand at angles on a roof that's very dangerous. Even though you have harnesses, it may not be something you can do anymore. So if the injured party uh, dies as a result of their injuries, their heirs can also recover for the deceased lost future income based on their work history, based on their earning capacity, their job title, their experience. That's all part of what we consider to be future lost wages. So it'll likely require testimony from an expert witness, uh, maybe an economist, to be able to prove that future lost income for someone that's died, but you can be compensated for that. I have a question. It's related, but it might be a little off topic. Just hear me out on this. You just uh, did a reference. If you're a roofer and you break both legs and you're really not physically able to go back up on the roof until you're healed and maybe at that point you are able, is there any possible compensation? What if you're afraid? What if the, the damage is mental and not physical? Does that weigh in at any level? Well, yes, but you're still looking for a clinical diagnosis. Okay. And there's got to be some diagnostic report showing that you're mentally unable to return to that kind of work because of fear. Um, whatever the, the foundation is for that determination, a doctor's going to have to make it. Um, but obviously, if you have broken legs and you are unstable on your feet, you're probably not going to want to return to that kind of career. Your employer, though, may have some sort of sedentary work in an office, answering phones, sitting at a desk, uh, going out and doing estimates from the ground, not climbing up on the roof. Nowadays, they use drones to do roof estimates. So there may be other kinds of work at the same employer, but physically climbing up on that roof may not be something you can do anymore was, or want to yes. do anymore. Okay. I was just curious if they weigh damages for mental stress yeah, the oh, same yeah. way that they can weigh it for physical stress. Right. And like we summed up a while ago, it's got to be proved. Okay. You've got to have some clinical diagnostic report showing that you're not physically or in that case mentally able to return to that kind of job. Okay. Uh, we talked about uh, past lost wages and future, future lost wages. I do want to throw in one other category. It's called diminished earning capacity. Now that's a general damage. A general damage, again, based on the enlightened consciousness of a jury. A loss of earning capacity goes more to the mental state, like we talked about just now, uh, pain and suffering component of the, of the claim. So the diminished earning capacity could also be factored into the example. You're mentally not able to return back to climbing up on that roof. Okay. So the jury can give someone whatever amount they think is appropriate to compensate for that loss of ability to earn a living. Um, again, it's not a dollar amount set in stone. It's, it's their perception of the facts, the evidence, and the testimony to determine what's appropriate to compensate the person. So regardless of how much money someone made or potentially would have made, that lost earning capacity is worth something, the diminished earning capacity. An injured person can no longer earn a living as he or she may have earned prior to their, their car wreck. 
Okay. So if okay. your injuries prevent you from being able to return to work to the same position or earning level that you held prior to it, that's called the diminished earning capacity. Um, you know, I mentioned a while ago, you may be able to return, return to work doing sedentary work or maybe part-time work. Uh, so you're required now to take a lesser amount of pay uh, or a lesser amount of hours. Uh, again, it brings in expert testimony to kind of quantify that diminished earning capacity. It may be an economist. It may be someone who looks at your career, your your um, your earning capacity in the past, and and calculate what that lost earning capacity or diminished capacity is for the future. Okay, so now that you've covered the foundational information, let's get back to Rob's question about calculating and proving lost wages. Sure. So it again, it's a great question. I, I want to talk about. Um, a few different things here. Lost wages are compensable. Again, can be compensated, uh, but it can require several levels of proof and really a lot of legwork for the client to, to assemble some documents. Also, too, for the attorney. You need to prove it with facts, not just speculation. Well, I could have earned this. I might have earned this. It's got to be fact-based testimony to, again, rise to that special damage category. It starts with the doctor's note. I mentioned that a while ago. The doctor's note has to take you out of work and say that you cannot perform your job duties and you got to stay out of work for a period of time while you heal. Uh, think about a kid. If a kid misses time from school, a day out of school, a parent has to go and get a doctor's excuse. It's kind of like that. It's a doctor's excuse saying you're no longer able to, to mm -hmm. at least temporarily while you're recovering, return to that kind of work. Um, there may be re work restrictions, no bending, no lifting, no stooping, no squatting, no sitting, no climbing. Uh, you know, those kind of things that a doctor may also put on you as well. So calculating the amount. Let's look at different examples of jobs. Let's start with an hourly wage employee because that's the easiest. If it's an hourly wage employee, you simply take the total hours they missed as a result of their injuries and the time away from work and you multiply it by the amount they earn per hour. There you go. That's the lost wage for an hourly wage employee. But you don't want to forget about things like overtime pay or bonus pay. Even though someone's an hourly wage employee, if they typically work, say, 10 hours of overtime a week, well, that may be time and a half if they're paid time and a half for overtime. There may be some sort of bonus structure where if they work X number of hours, then a bonus amount kicks in. So those are, again, things that have to be calculated accurately to represent that hourly wage employee lost wage. You could also be compensated for vacation pay or personal leave time. Um, you know, when somebody uses their vacation pay, to not lose a paycheck while they're out recovering from their injuries or sick days, then they could have used those otherwise later on. But I now think they that's don't have any too. Right, exactly. Just to grab any extra day I don't that have a you paycheck. can. Right. Sure. I, sure. I want to get paid my week of vacation while yeah. I'm out for my injuries, but now you don't have that week anymore because you no. had to use it for your car wreck. So think about getting your boss or maybe your human resources person, uh, HR person to provide a statement on company letterhead that signs off on the specific amount of wages you lost as an hourly wage employee. Okay. Uh, that's a very good tip. I think that's, that's important. I just can't stress enough. What I'm hearing of this is the documentation, right? You said, keep all the notes. I would say, keep, keep a journal, you know, of, of every day that you're supposed to be at work. It, like you said, if you have to take off at two o'clock for an appointment, just write that down. It's going to be much, much harder to go back and try to go through a calendar and remember. Yeah, all that, it's a tip right? I give clients every day. Start at the forefront, right, be on the, be on the front end of all this. Okay, I can understand how an hourly wage employee's loss may be easy to calculate, but what do you do if the person is a salaried employee? 
Isn't that more difficult? Yes, it, it can be because salaries obviously are differently differently calculated. That the the idea is that that people who are on a salary generally aren't confined to a forty hour work week, period. As you get to be a salaried employee, your expectations are you have a job to do. You're here as long as it takes to get that job right. done. Absolutely. It may be 45, it may be 50, it may be 60, it may be 80. But ultimately, you're expected to be there until your job gets done. So a salaried employee is likely going to go unpaid for their time only if they miss more than a couple of weeks. So a boss may say, well, you know, you're out for a week, you're out for a couple of weeks, we're just going to keep paying your salary you're going to have to make up that time and, and your work while you, when you return to work, but they're likely not going to go without paying you for a salary. I run into that, quite frankly, all the time. But if you do miss more than a couple of weeks, well, they may stop paying you your salary while you're out. And if so, you take the uh, basically the salary amount, divide it by 52 weeks in a year, then you divide it by 40 hours a week, and you come up with an hourly wage. And you use that hourly wage calculation to multiply by the number of hours you missed to come up with the dollar amount to represent somewhat accurately what your lost wage was. But the difficulty can come to play if you receive production bonuses or commissions on top of your base salary. Think about that. Which so, is also very common. Exactly. Most people right. are salary plus commission. Yeah, and sure. you can never completely prove the exact amount you may have lost in bonuses or commissions when you can't work. But you can look work, look at uh, several weeks prior to your injury to come up with a kind of fairly accurate estimate as to what that amount may be. Mm -hmm. So if you average, say, $1,000 in bonuses every month, well, then you can kind of use that as a foundation to prove what that lost bonus was or that lost commission amount was. You may have to produce tax returns for several years, usually three years, maybe five years, to show what your, your earning capacity, your earning uh, amount was over the four or five years, maybe three years prior to the day your injury occurred, again, as a salaried employee. Sure. Now, here's another thing, though. What if you're new to your career, your job, you've only been getting the salary for a few months, and you're involved in a car wreck, and you're now out of work? Well, you can't go back two, three, five years. So we have what we call a similarly situated employee, someone who does the same kind of job you're now doing, and you can look at their earning capacity over that three to five years to, again, be able to calculate what your lost income would be, including commission and, and bonuses, by looking at that the similarly situated employee. Look at your pay stubs. Those are ways to prove, again, as a salaried employee, what your loss was. It sounds like there's a lot of ways, right? It's prove, 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 fact, fact, fact. Yeah. But there's, you know, Attention tax to detail. returns, this uh, new term. I've never heard this. Simil similarly situated employees. So That's it. Uh, what I get out of all this is just call an attorney and get yeah, the guy. Yeah. Call Derek. Don't just call exactly. an attorney. Please it's attention call Derek. to detail. Okay. If you miss a detail, you could miss a substantial amount of your income yeah. that would be compensated otherwise. Well, I'm self-employed like Rob that posed the question, what would be required to prove my lost wages? So being self-employed does make proving lost wages a lot trickier, but it can be done. Um, your best option is to hire an accountant. You may already have an accountant as someone who's self-employed who can help prove what your wages normally are versus what your income is after your accident, after your car wreck injuries. Um, that accountant's going to have to, again, produce potentially tax returns to show what the uh, the track record has been. If you've incrementally gone up 10, 15, 20% a year, well, that's a way to prove that. Depending on what kind of work you do, you may also have a claim for what we call lost opportunities. Okay. What is that term? I've never heard lost opportunities either in and, this and most people setting, have it. right? Yeah, okay. Mo most people have it. So lost opportunities, you can you can prove or uh, potentially prove that by 
um, showing future opportunities for income that were lost during the time you were out of work because of your injuries. So um, think about it this way. It can come down to factors such as age, industry, potential for promotion, uh, compensation with commission or bonuses. That also, too, may require an expert to prove it. Uh, think about sales commission that goes to somebody else that takes over your accounts while you're out, while you're recovering. You know, that sales commission arguably would have been yours if you had not had to miss days from work, but somebody else is covering your your territory or, or your job while you're out, and they get the commission that otherwise could have come to you. Uh, but I want to talk about a story real quick. Because I, I, I was sitting here thinking as I was answering, and it reminded me of a client many years ago I represented who was a house painter. He was self-employed. Uh, he had a crew of maybe two or three guys that worked with him, but there were times where he literally worked on his own based on the size of the job. He was contacted by someone who was trying to sell their home. Uh, the home was under contract, and he had, I think it was 20 days to, to complete the job. And so he was hired to go and paint, I think it was a front porch and maybe a back deck, a couple other things, ex exterior paint work. And he went the uh, to do the estimate. He was hired. They signed a contract. The morning of his job, to, and the day it was supposed to start, he went to Home Depot, Lowe's, wherever it was, Sherman Williams, to, to buy the paint, Sherman Williams, to buy the paint. And on the way to the job, he was involved in a nasty car wreck. He wound up with broken bones, and ultimately for, I think it was maybe six weeks, he was completely out of work. But the problem was that job had to be completed within 20 days because they were selling their house. So they couldn't wait for him to recover. He was not able to go within that 20-day window that the contract called for to do the exterior painting. So the family had to go and hire somebody He lost else. the job. Right. Okay. He lost that job. The contract was signed by all parties, so he clearly would have been paid had he been able to do the job. But because of his injuries, he couldn't. So that's an example of a lost opportunity, but we were able to prove it because of the contract signed by both parties and, more importantly, the fact that that job couldn't wait for him to recover. It had to be done because they were selling the house. So they had to go hire somebody else. They had to pay somebody else. The job was no longer available for him to do once he recovered. So as part of his compensation, I was able to get him compensated for the loss of that contract. From the insurance company. From the insurance company. I was going to say, it's not the homeowner's no, no, responsibility, not the homeowner. no, even no. though they signed the contract. Right, right, because he was unable to perform his part of the contract. Right. So that at that point, it, it fell on the, the, uh, the insurance company for the at-fault driver to pay for not only his injuries and his medical bills and his pain and suffering, but they also had to pay for that lost contract. And it was a substantial amount of money that otherwise would have gone unpaid if he had tried to do it on his own or if we had not paid attention to detail and found out about the existing contract. Did he make a full recovery? He did. Are you allowed yes, to he, tell he, us? He did. He, he did. He recovered. But Good. again, he was out of work for six weeks yeah. as a house painter. You can't climb ladders. You can't I would do all think those longer things. than that with broken bones. It, it was it was thankfully not as bad as it, quite frankly, could have been. It was right. a non-surgical issue, but okay. nonetheless, he recovered. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that it had a happy ending. Yes. All right. The next question from, from Nikita in Fairburn, Georgia. My elderly mom was injured in a car wreck a few years ago. She hired an attorney, but it wasn't you. Shame, shame. <laughs> the insurance company claimed that some of her injuries were not caused by the wreck because she had had back problems for years, including surgery, and they refused to pay for several treatments. Can they do that and not pay for her medical treatment? They can try, and that's it. They can try anything they want to, but it's a matter of whether or not your attorney is able to overcome that, that attempt to avoid paying those bills. So if you have pre-existing injuries, 
um, it doesn't prevent you from pursuing a personal injury claim when those same areas of your body are aggravated or made worse by a car wreck. So I don't know if you've heard the term or not, but as attorneys, we call it an eggshell plaintiff. No, I've never you ever heard, heard that. Phrase? No, okay. no, I'm learning everything. <laughs> so an eggshell plaintiff. Um, that means that a defendant does not escape liability because the plaintiff has a particular, and here's the word, propensity, propensity. towards injury and is more injured than someone else <laughs> might otherwise be in a car wreck. The problem is that it, it may be very difficult to separate which conditions are pre-existing and which are caused or aggravated by that car wreck. So if the injured person is an eggshell plaintiff, then it is always best to get their prior medical records and have them reviewed by the treating physician, where the treating physician may talk about, you know, in the past where they've complained about back pain, it's been a burning, tingling sensation. But now it may be a numbing, uh, more severe pain that, that was caused by the car wreck, as opposed to the, the burning, tingling sensation that existed prior to the car wreck. It'll likely take a medical opinion to separate those two kinds, what's pre-existing or uh, you know, something they've been dealing with for some time as opposed to the new injury, um, something that was caused solely by the car wreck. So being an eggshell plaintiff many times requires a claim to go into litigation for depositions and even uh, potentially evidentiary arguments to, to prove what is pre-existing and what's not. Is there a law about eggshell plaintiff? Yes, the, 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 the case on point, we'll start with that. It went to the Georgia Court of Appeals back in 2005. It's a case called AT Symptoms Southeast, Inc. v. Carnes. Oh, I've um, heard of that. Yeah. Just I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you, you made me think, wow, wait a minute. No. I, I'm impressed. But, but it's, again, legal mumbo jumbo. But case law does support many of the things we have to do as attorneys. So there was evidence in that case that the plaintiff was obese and had circular uh, circulatory problems and high blood pressure, which complicated her recovery. Um, it's long been a rule that an at-fault driver or at-fault party takes a plaintiff in whatever condition he or she finds that plaintiff. Again, the eggshell plaintiff. A negligent actor, someone who causes a wreck, must bear the risk that his or her liability will be increased by the by reason of the actual physical condition of the other person uh, toward whom the act, actor was negligent. In other words, again, the eggshell plaintiff. So I'm going to quote from the, the ruling in this because I don't want to sum this up. I want to read this. It says, the rule deals particularly with the scenario where a plaintiff's physical conditions make a subsequent injury more serious or more difficult to treat. Aggravation of pre-existing condition, on the other hand, involves either a dormant or known condition that is made worse or made symptomatic by virtue of subsequent tortuous acts, meaning uh, a car wreck. To the extent that the condition is aggravated or made symptomatic, a tortfeasor, the at-fault party, may be liable to the extent of the aggravation. So to kind of wrap up the answer, pre-existing conditions can present a difficult but insurmountable obstacle uh, in presenting a damage to a jury. Um, it takes a lot of work by an experienced attorney to know how to present the facts in the best light possible uh, for the plaintiff to be able to maximize the recovery. You've got to deflect all those arguments that, oh, well, this was something that was already going on before the car wreck occurred. They, they uh, were suffering from that back pain anyway. The car wreck didn't do anything. It's simply a continuation of the prior problem. So I get this over and over, and I'm listening to this. I'm hanging on every word that you're saying, and I just keep thinking, yes, I can understand it. You break it down. Absolutely fantastic for all of us that are listening. But this is still something I would not want to handle on my own. 
every little angle of this, right? So right, right, and you can I fall can say the it trap. over and over, but every time we we cover another question or we go through another topic, it's like I, this is your expertise, right? I mean, and it all builds. Oh, it all builds because right. you know, in, in a prior podcast, more than once, we've talked about recorded statements. If somebody gives a recorded statement following a car wreck without an attorney involved, and they're asked a very simple question, "Have you in- ever injured your back before?" Well, I, first of all, wouldn't have allowed them to answer that question. But if an attorney's not involved, they're probably going to say, well, yeah, you know, I've had kind of back pain over, off and over through the years. And that's an honest answer. Everybody has back pain off and on through the years. As you get older, the back pain kind of increases. It, it's a little more magnified, a little more frequent. Right. But if they say something like that in a recorded statement and then later on the medical records show that they have back pain and complaints of back problems in their treatment, the insurance company is going to use that recorded statement to say, well, look, it was pre-existing. You've told me early on that you've had this for years. So the car wreck didn't cause it. And that's, again, a trap you can fall into if you don't have an attorney and try and go sure. about this on your own. I would fall into that. They would say, I would say, oh, when I was 15, I did a back dive and hurt <laughs> yeah. my back. You know, yeah. I just wouldn't know, right, right, the, right. With the, the tricks that the other side is trying to do. So call Derek, everybody. I can't say it enough. All right. But we do have a final question. This comes from Frank in Buckhead, Georgia. His question is, I have been told a few different answers about how juries treat medical bills in a personal injury trial. I have always thought that they were automatically required to pay a medical bill in full if they felt it was caused by somebody else in a car wreck. I have also been told that they don't have to pay every bill in full. Who do I believe? Great question. Again, always a terrific question uh, about things of... You know, what's what's compensable and what's not uh, when we talk about damages. Um, the short answer is, uh, you know, I kind of talked about this a little while ago. Let's start with the, the jury charge, the law. Again, I want to start with the basics on this. The law says the bills have to be reasonable and necessary. You can also throw the word in there, customary, reasonable and customary. Defense law- lawyers love to argue um, this in every trial they'll argue that the bills aren't reasonable and customary they're not reasonable and necessary very simply what is reasonable and necessary that's the question that's posed they'll argue that most of the treatments were excessive unnecessary based on the diagnosis just plain wrong Uh, another one that i see frequently they'll claim that when you get a negative test result say for example you have an x-ray a ct scan an MRI or an ultrasound and the test results are negative the defense attorney is going to argue well that proves they should never have done that test they just ran up some bills. It wasn't reasonable and customary. Well, you don't know what, whether or not the test is going to be positive or negative for a broken bone when you do an x-ray until the x-ray is done. You don't know what the CT scan is going to show until the scan is done or an MRI. But they're going to argue that a negative result means, oh, they shouldn't have done it. It's just running up the bills. It's not reasonable and necessary. It's not a customary procedure based on the complaints the, the injured party has. So the code section on point is 249-921, and it says... Upon the trial of any civil proceeding involving injury or disease, the patient or the member of his or her family or other person responsible for the care of the patient shall be competent witness to to identify bills for expenses incurred in the treatment of the patient upon a showing by such a witness that the expenses were incurred in connection with the treatment of the injury, disease, or disability involved in the subject litigation at trial and that the bills were received from there's no commas in that I sentence. I know, there's not. I mean, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> a hospital, an ambulance service, a pharmacy, drugstore, supplier of therapeutic orthopedic treatment, licensed practitioner. It goes on and on and on. But what's missing from there is that language. What is reasonable and necessary? So the law has 
kind of taken the code section as it was written and kind of added in there the standard of reasonable and necessary or reasonable and customary. So do they have to pay dollar for dollar what your medical bill is? No, they don't have to do that. The standard is that they have to pay what's considered to be reasonable, reasonable and, necessary, and necessary or reasonable okay. and customary, which, again, whichever word you want to use. So to answer the question directly, Frank, it is true that they don't automatically have to pay a bill in full. It's up to your attorney to be able to prove that that bill is necessary and reasonable under the circumstances based on your complaints and the severity of your injury. And I believe you have another story, yeah, I do. which is always my favorite, I right? Do. I try to get you to interject these when you're allowed to talk because yeah. some of these are confidential. And this one came to mind, too, when I was kind of reading over Frank's question. And it goes back to another client I represented before. Uh, long story, but the abbreviated version, she's a kidney dialysis patient. Uh, she was being picked up by a transport service to take to her dialysis appointment. She's wheelchair bound, so they got her onto the van, and as opposed to strapping the, the wheelchair in place as they're supposed to do, the attendant apparently forgot to. The driver forgot to do it. So when the wheelchair was put in place, he put the brakes on, he got back behind the wheel, he started to drive. Well, the brakes on the wheelchair on the back. And so when he started to drive, the force of the, the forward movement flipped her wheelchair backwards. Oh, my god! She wasn't strapped in. So when she flipped backwards, she banged her head on the floor of the van and fractured her skull. Oh, so lady. So horrible injury, terrible injury with a fractured skull, and there was some brain injury as well. But mm. she's also a dialysis patient. Mm -hmm. She was on her way to dialysis. So to continue her dialysis as she had to, to, to maintain basically her life, it meant there were additional treatments that had to be done to address the fact she's now got a brain injury and a fractured skull and go to her dialysis appointment. So part of the argument in that case was, well, those dialysis treatments were going to go on whether she was in a car wreck or not. Well, that's true. But the added parts of the expense that were brought on because of the car wreck were considered to be reasonable and necessary expenses to treat someone with a brain injury and fractured skull during the time she's treating for dialysis. So again, it, it kind of made me think about that because that was an example of where the insurance company through the defense attorney and the adjuster argued that those added bills, those added expenses with dialysis were not reasonable and necessary based on the injury where I had an expert that said, oh yeah, they are. They had to be, there had to be additional steps taken to delicately continue to treat her with dialysis because of the, the severity of her other injury. Well, I agree with the expert. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, they are. Thank, thankfully, oh. a jury did, too. Good. So that, that's good. good. So, good. It, it, again, it makes no reference to the need for the plaintiff to prove that the medical bills are being used to recover damages when uh, where they're necessary and reasonable in the code section. But it's kind of become the adapted law that uh, ultimately you have to show, again, reasonable and customary, reasonable and necessary. All right. I know we are almost out of time, but I have one final question that I really want to sneak in here. Go ahead. This is from Jeff. And I think Jeff may be a high school student or maybe even a college student. And Jeff, if you're listening to Injury Insider, uh, I have the question here. So I know that law school is probably in your future. This is really cute. Is law school as hard as everyone says it is? I really think that this will be my career path, but I'm not sure yet. <laughs> so he's listening to Injury Insider to That's get great. his pre-law education. That's great, Jeff. I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, you know, the immediate response is, no, run, no, no, don't <laughs> Oh, I do thought it. you were going to say, no, it's not hard. No. <laughs> it is hard. Yeah, well, yes, it, it, it is hard. The law school is, you know, it was a decision that I made. I knew that was the career path I was going to go to, and and... 
when I made the decision, I realized I was biting off a lot. It's going to be a lot of reading. I hope you like to read because it's not uncommon to have several hundred pages in several classes per night to read. And, and you've got to dedicate the time and spend a lot of time in the library. You're going to be pulling old books out of the shelf, off the shelf and sitting down. Now, nowadays, I'm sure a lot of it can be done with a computer, but you're going to be sitting with uh, books and reading and highlighting and briefing cases and uh, your social life is going to be diminished. You're going to be tired a lot because you're going to be, your eyes are going to be worn out from reading all the time. But in, in law school, it's the Socratic method of teaching. And I, you have to learn it when you're there as a first year law student. But a professor will come in and say, Mr. Hayes, stand up and tell me everything I need to know about the case of so-and-so v. so-and-so. And so you better have read that case and you better be prepared because you're going to stand up and you're going to start briefing the case. You're going to start telling the facts, the issues at hand, and, and basically breaking down the case. And mid-sentence, the professor may look at you and say, well, that's great. Stop for a second and point to another student and say, uh, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, stand up and tell me why Mr. Hayes is wrong. And they're going to have to stand up. They're going to have to start arguing a different approach to the case. And then he or she may say, well, that's great. And they'll point to another student. Now tell me where they're wrong. So sounds fun. Yeah, it is challenging and it's intentionally challenging. Sure. You've got to be able to learn to formulate arguments. You've got to be able to learn to read and comprehend and understand case law and apply case law to your specific facts at hand. Um, uh, one last story, and I'll give you a quick story on that in law school. Um, your last, I guess you could say, year, your, your third year of law school, um, you typically will take a trial course of some sort. And in the trial course, the professor will throw all kinds of curveballs at you. You'll spend the entire semester getting ready for your mock trial. Your professor may be the judge and other professors will be the jury. And you're terrified. You walk into the courtroom the day of your mock trial for your final exam. And you've got your fellow classmates as the um, the people assembled in the courtroom to watch. And you have your opponent, who's another law school student. You've got your client, who's also another law school student. And the judge can... And, and you're ready. I mean, you're oh, walking yeah. in, right? You've oh, prepared. It's... You probably haven't slept. Yeah, you, oh, you, no, you no, pulled up all. multiple all-nighters. Yeah. I can only imagine. I think I did right? my opening statement, my closing argument to my dog maybe right. <laughs> 10 times, and my dog just stared at me the whole time. But, okay. All so, right. yeah, you're, you're terrified. It's your first ever right. experience at trying a case. It's a mock trial, but the, the fear, the anxiety, the, uh -huh. the prep work, all that's there. And you walk up, you hand in your trial notebook, which is generally a few hundred pages long with case law and, and evidentiary rulings and all kinds of things like that. But anyway, so the professor, you, you uh, walk in and, and you know, all rise and your, your professor walks in and sits and everything. I mean, it's, it's a routine courtroom. And the judge, again, your professor may say, well, Mr. Hayes, and you call your other opponent, uh, opponent, you can approach and you walk to the bench and you hand him your trial notebook and the judge, uh, your judge, your professor can take your trial notebook and hand it to the other attorney or the other classmate and take theirs and hand it to you and say, okay, gentlemen, ladies, walk out in the hallway. You got 10 minutes, come back in, you're switching sides. Mr. Hayes, oh, you're now the defendant. Oh, gosh. Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so, you're now the plaintiff. Or they may tell you one of your witnesses is suddenly not available to testify. Try your case, but without this witness. And that witness may be the one that you've based your entire side of your, your case on, and, and now that witness is, according to your professor, no longer available. So you've got to be able to think on your feet. You've you got to be able to, again, reason things out comprehend what you're reading, apply that to 
any um, solid uh, argument you're expecting to make. Um, I did law school in two years. Uh, normally it's three years, but I guess I was a glutton for punishment. Overachiever. <laughs> well, I wanted to get in and out. I wanted to start practicing. So I went year round nonstop through the summers and, and I did law school in two years again, just so I could get out and get started. So if you're wanting to do it, call my office. I'll be happy to talk to you more about it. You know, maybe come and, and meet with you at, at my office and kind of sit down and go through it, Jeff. But it, it's um, just be prepared. It's a lot of work. Well, thank you. And I hope, Jeff, you got to let us know if this is the route that you're going to take. Keep listening to Injury Insider. You're going to be way ahead of the game if you're getting this education every week. Right, Derek? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I told everybody at the top of the show, this was a question and answer show podcast today. So where can they submit their questions? Start with my website. Go to my website. It's Derek, D-E-R-E-K, the letter M as in Matthew, Hayes, H-A-Y-S dot com. So Derek M. Hayes dot com. If you go to the website, you'll see a couple of things. One, uh, a chat box will pop up. If you have a specific question, you can chat directly with me or someone with my office there through the website, or you can submit a question about a potential case there on the uh, website. There's also a podcast tab. That's another way you can communicate with me. Uh, these questions we covered today, as well as many of the other ones, they come to, to me through that podcast tab. So go on there, put in your name, your city. You don't even have to put that if you don't want to, but but put your question in there. It'll be submitted to me, and I'll address it in an eventual uh, podcast on down the road. Uh, some of them I actually respond directly to with an email because they're not necessarily topics we can cover here, but I will definitely be the one to respond to that, again, in the podcast or directly to you. Uh, so contact me through my website. You can also call me at my office. My main number is 678-225-0970 or 404-777-HURT. Also catch me on social media, the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. I've got a Facebook page. I've got an Injury Insider podcast Facebook page now. And then also, too, my uh, Instagram, Law Office of Derek M. Hayes or Twitter. Any of those routes, you can catch me and reach out to me. I'll be happy to discuss your potential claim with you. And as always, the initial consultation is free. Thank you for a fantastic show, Derek. Thank you for your time and your expertise. All right, everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes, presented by Status Home Design, the Status Market, and the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Don't forget that you can enjoy any of our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com, select the Gwinnett Studio, and then click on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. This program is also available on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, for Derek Hayes, I'm Lita Brooks, and you've been listening to Injury Insider on Business Radio X.